Can you take it fully off and keep your socks on? No, 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 no. You guys are psychopaths. You've never gotten fully before. You're listening to a podcast created by the Jacksway Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now let's get to the show. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we are here, um, the Jack Swade Collective. We are on our 11th episode. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, apologies to listeners at home. We are actually attempting to record in person for the first time ever. So this is going to go off the rails many, many times. Um, we'll try and bring it back as much as possible. But we are really leaving this one up to our uh, paid editor to clean. <laughs> okay, so today um, we're actually on another movie episode. This was kind of a communal choice, so no one person chose it. But we decided to watch a film called We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lynn Ramsey. Uh, some of us had seen the film before and some of us were going in totally blind. Um, so I think we have some different perspectives today. But before we go, or before we get there, we're actually going to start off with an intro discussion. We have not done this for a while. But I figured that the film also leads to a kind of interesting side discussion. So why don't we start off with that? This for me was triggered by watching a Vox video on gene editing. And it seems like genetic editing technology is getting better and better. Although we're not completely there yet, we are on the horizon of being able to make some changes, uh, identifying genes for disease or for certain mental illnesses or whatever that may be, and actually change the genetic code to um, you know have babies that are actually a little bit more optimized for uh, the real world. And so... <laughs> <laughs> optimized. <laughs> That's some rough language to use. <laughs> Baby 2.0. <laughs> well, here's exactly why it's an interesting discussion, because we have this technology, and we also have children who are birthed into this world that are like Kevin Idiots. in this film. And so it is... <laughs> to a greater or lesser degree. And so I thought it was a great uh, opportunity for discussion um, to bring up two questions. One, would you even want access to this technology? And two, if you did have access to it, would you make any changes to your potential offspring? Um, and what would those changes be? Let's start with Oliver. Oh, God. I don't like so. So the most basic example, would you want to know like the gender of your baby and or like the, the hair color or um, if it was going to be susceptible to certain diseases? And one, would you want to know that? Um, two, would you change it? So it's almost like, it's like a ladder almost where you climb up and you get further and further along as soon as you, once you know, then you have to make the next decision. Um, hundred percent. And so like you can extend that spectrum as far as you'd like. I feel like if you found something out that you could easily change, like a disability or something, and you didn't change it, you'd probably feel terrible. So do you feel like once the technology is readily available, it's almost like obligatory that you should do something like that to, you know, head off the mental illness or head off the um, potential for, you know, some sort of childbirth issues or anything like that? Maybe. Because, I mean, imagine if you were the kid and, like, everyone in your school was got fixed or whatever. You would hate your parents. You'd be pretty resentful. Yeah, 100%. Like, they chose. That's pretty, they like, had an opportunity to fix you. I feel like people aren't that open-minded yet, though. Excuse the pop culture reference, but everyone was up in arms when Chrissy Teigen, love you, Chrissy, hope you're listening. Um, she had IVF and she deliberately chose what gender she wanted her babies to be. She wanted a girl first and then she wanted a boy second. And everyone was like, oh, you can't make choices like that. Only God can decide, blah, blah, blah. 
But like, bitch, no. Like, she paid $25,000 for the procedure. She can choose whatever the fuck she wants. <laughs> yeah, I guess oh, like, I could see people so, getting carried away. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, gender is one thing. But like, what if, for example, you wanted to change your the IQ of your baby? Or what if you found your baby was going to have uh, psychopathy? Um, <laughs> would you want to, you know, come in and alter that? I feel like the psychopathy and any other mental illness is an interesting discussion point because if you have an obligation to your child to ensure the best possible life, that's one thing. But when it comes to something like psychopathy where there's potential ramifications on external people who are outside of the situation itself, you have a societal obligation to protect them in some sort of way. So if you do have a child who has potentially violent tendencies or may take out emotions on other people, do you alter that child such that it minimizes the impact and the harm that is done onto society itself? And so does the responsibility of the parents of that child increase once this technology becomes available? Yeah, 100%. Like obviously right now, some of those psychopathy symptoms don't present themselves until the child is older, but if slash when that technology becomes available, I definitely think it's your responsibility. All half of all violent crimes are committed by psychopaths. Okay, so just to kind of push the question a bit further, what if you found out that, you know, your baby was going to have a slightly less than average IQ, um, and therefore by not doing anything about it, you are minimizing the potential benefits to society by not choosing to raise their IQ when that technology is available. What about that case? So are the options raising their IQ or is the option like termination? <laughs> Either let them be birthed with the same IQ or having the technology available to raise it and not doing so. Or just actually raising their IQ and you know maybe make a genius that solves hunger or just adds a little bit more value to his community than he would if he had a lower IQ. As an interesting counterpoint, where does the obligation of those who are operating the machine or operating whatever the process is where does their obligation to the people end? Like, for instance, let's say uh, someone is having a child and that child is born to be so successful that they are going to like go on and do their own thing, but the mother is a single mother and wants to keep the child close by, so they diminish their baby's value, whether it be through IQ or athletic prowess, whatever it is. If they wanted to diminish that child such that they're more likely to stay close and be dependent on the mother to like facilitate that bond, where does the obligation to the individual end? Can one enact some sort of uh, rule such that they can't do anything that would devalue the child? And if that's the case, how would you define that devaluation? And it seems like, like the main difference between these two cases is one, you are actually like, you are fencing off potential harm, right? Whereas the other one, you actually have the opportunity to lift something up and not do so. Those are actually totally two totally different actions. So it's no wonder that they have differences of responsibility. The case where you know your kid's gonna have psychopathy and you decide, no, you make the genetic alterations to potentially save society, that seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, but it's a much trickier case when you have the potential to lift someone up and you choose not to. But I feel like we do that every day, potentially, with every action that we take in our social relations. So maybe the responsibility is just not there. What do, what do you mean exactly by it's there every day in our actions? Well, I mean, the example, that, the example that Brennan uses is the mother being an overbearing mother and holding her potentially extremely intelligent or extremely athletic children child back 
You don't need any genetic altering technology to do that. Mm -hmm. um, all that I'm saying is that we could be doing this in our social relationships with our friends or other people or our own parents or our parents could be doing it to us and we can do that consciously or we also could do it totally unconsciously and not even know. But we put no sort of like moral responsibility onto that. It's a very slippery slope though. Like, I don't know. It all speaks to culpability. Even in the film, I guess we'll go into this later. The parent, the mother, whoever, you're not always necessarily responsible for your child's actions. Even if you can do things to prevent them, like, I don't know, you can't be culpable for everything. 100%. And I've now just remembered the topic that I wanted to put on your list of things to do. And that is the role of responsibility and the role that the community of people in this film, like the angle that they take in terms of that responsibility and whether or not that's valid. Just bring it up as a reminder for later. And so, just trying to think of like additional, additional follow-up question. This technology is going to come to us and we're going to have choices, right? Is the only real like imperative, what is morally obligatory for us to stop harm? Or is there any sort of additional moral obligation we have when this technology becomes available to us to make any sort of changes to child? Is there any one other change that is also morally obligatory that does not involve the steering away the child from harm? or causing other harm to the community. So I'm gonna take this to the furthest possible extreme and say, if we use this technology to optimize human beings, to steal your terminology, which was extremely <laughs> computer scientific of you, uh, if, if, if we're gonna take this approach in terms of optimizing human beings, how does that differentiate us from uh, how does that differentiate from us from the Nazis who are using genocide to eradicate the less ideal beings? Essentially, like we may not be killing anybody off, but we are killing off the opportunity of such beings existing. And then we would have to impose some sort of societal ideal onto what the perfect child would be. There'd be no variation. I think that gets us into an extremely difficult situation where we would be imposing of subjective ideal of what's optimal onto a child. I think the prevention of harm and the removal of any sort of um, detrimental uh, characteristics is one thing, but the imposition of superior characteristics is when you get into an extremely uh, questionable moral ground. Well, it would make survival of the fittest irrelevant because everyone would be fit as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> the definition between uh, like the detrimental characteristics and optimal characteristics is important. If we were to be able to differentiate the two such that we were removing the detrimental characteristics from society as opposed to in uh, imposing a societal ideal onto individuals, that's important. I'm just, I'm not entirely sure where that differentiation ends. And are you imposing harm on them by depriving them of potential enhancements? In that article, it was talking about nature versus nurture with psychopath, psycho, um, psychopaths. So even if we had that technology, um, I, it seems to me like you could still become a psychopath True, very true. Yeah, so I mean, it's not a perfect solution, 100%. Um, <laughs> that's that's a very Nazi-esque like. <laughs> final solution. Yeah. Beyond perfect solution. You already said something. <laughs> It's okay though, because I know like the listeners can't see this, but Yana right now has the reverse Hitler stash where he has a bald spot <laughs> right under his nose. <laughs> and then so he may have Hitler's ideals, but he looks the exact opposite of it. I am the inverse <laughs> of Hitler, I swear.
as I mentioned earlier, this is kind of a communal choice, so we have no person who's thrown in the bus to summarize the uh, the film. So Brennan has volunteered. But we're still going to do that anyway. Uh, through some slight peer pressure. So take it away. Uh, we actually chose this film because we wanted to call this episode episode El Kevin, because um, <laughs> it's eleven and it rhymes with Kevin. <laughs> So that's why we chose it. Um, for those that are unfamiliar with the movie, though, it's based off of a novel, um, and uh, the premise of the movie is that uh, this couple, Franklin and Eva, uh, they have this child named Kevin, and with Eva, um, she was living her own sort of life, and they had this beautiful sense of freedom that Kevin kind of took away from them, which I think fostered a little bit of resentment. Um, and then uh, Kevin, as a child, starts to exhibit some incredibly psychopathic behavior. Not only is it psychopathic behavior, it's very much targeted at Eva, and there's this friction between Franklin and Eva regarding um, how malicious of an intent Kevin is bearing with his actions. Um, the whole thing just kind of plays out. Uh, you get to see him go through these different growth stages and how his behavior evolves uh, at each individual stage until as a teenager, uh, what he does is he purchases a bunch of bike locks, locks a lot of people in a gymnasium and shoots them down with a bow and arrow. And um, that's essentially the premise of the film. The film is sort of uh, has this misdirection where you're trying to figure out uh, what exactly is causing all of this negative attitude towards Eva? And then we realize that it's Kevin that's really the, the source of all of it. Uh, it plays into themes of a willing ignorance in a relationship. Uh, it plays into these themes of uh, the restrictive qualities of children and how they, um, how they can hold individuals back, the resentment that that can cause, as well as um, yeah, the targeted behavior of a child, whether they have that potential to be that vindictive. Um, to start off, I want to just first start with something you mentioned earlier, Oliver, and that is just the whole nature versus nurture debate. Um, just like upon watching this film, do you feel strongly about who, what the stronger player is here in the story? I think I'm still pretty on the fence on that. Clearly in this instance, it seems like a nature thing for Kevin. Yeah, I got that sense too. Yeah, I totally agree. Even though you see... A lot of the times, Eva being resentful or even a reluctant mother, there's still a lot of instances where she's really trying to connect with him and just wants the best for her son, um, but unfortunately never gets that from him. The resentment also appears to be exacerbated by Kevin's behavior. I feel like if Kevin was more of the optimal child in terms of behavior she would come around to it more frequently like we see these little positive moments like when she's reading a story to him and they have a bonding moment which may just be kevin's manipulative behavior but she has a sense of warmth and positivity that comes from that i feel like if that behavior was more evenly uh, exhibited by kevin as a child that would have changed her behavior and that resentment would not have been as evident and kudos to her for hanging in there for so long. Kudos to her for hanging in there. My question is, if she's so like well-traveled and presumably well-educated, why didn't you drag that kid's ass to a psychiatrist? She goes to the doctor. She, she the tried. Doctor yeah. the, the doctor was terrible. 
an idiot. He was, he was useless. I know. That part, like, annoyed me, but I get it. That's outside of the film. It's supposed to be parkour and isolating for Eva that no one believes her, how terrible this child is. But, yeah, sidebar, it's just like, take this kid in, my God. I couldn't believe it. It was like... Not a psychopath. <laughs> 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 Grabs a hand, lets it fall to the ground. Not a psychopath. Let me just look at this ear canal here. Yep, nope, all good. <laughs> the doctor's office is also terrifying. On the wall, there's pictures of clowns. Do you guys recall that? <laughs> I, oh, I, I, did not I, that. I did see that. <laughs> Creepy, just, yeah, classic pediatrician, you know? Classic pediatrician? <laughs> what pediatrician are you going to? Well, none, because I'm an adult, but... Oh, by the way, we got some pictures of Pennywise up on the wall. I hope you don't mind. It puts the kids at ease. Here's a red balloon for your troubles. There was a red ball in the film. Oh, shit. Okay, so I mean, I think we all share the fact that, like, from the viewer's perspective, from the mother's perspective, pretty much a fully nature situation. Some things that seem to push back against that, although like I don't even agree with them. One, I think when he talks about, like Kevin specifically talks to his mother about the way that he was potty trained, he specifically references like her shitty parenting and like tries to throw her under the bus. It's like, yeah, like you just shove the nose, shove the nose of the cat into the cat litter. Like he himself is referencing more of a nurture um, causal factor for who he is and what he's like. Shitty parenting. <laughs> he throws the shit right back. That was the weirdest part of the film for me was the fact like she changes his diaper and he gets oh, yeah. up and he looks back and he's like, This is for you. He doesn't actually say it, but like well, you can see it in his face. I don't just... know if you read that article that I sent to you, but I think Yana read it. It references half the patients in this like psycho facility. They love yeah. throwing feces. Yeah, yeah. And like shoving it through the cracks of the cell doors and stuff like that. It's so disgusting. Yeah. Okay, so that is, sorry, that is one pushback against the whole uh, nature argument. The second one is... But that wasn't even her being a poor potty trainer. He was being willfully... I totally agree with you. I, like, a thousand percent agree with you. I'm just saying, like, there are things in this film that push back against that. Okay, I mean, yeah, sure, you can argue she probably shouldn't have broken his arm. Mm -hmm. Probably shouldn't have tossed a kid halfway (laughs) across the room. Worth it. Yeah, anyways, I, like, again, I am in agreement with you guys. Um, Two is uh, the husband... The husband seems to really put a lot of blame is probably the right word on Kevin's upbringing in terms of his relationship with his mother. And like Brennan said earlier, this is some like willful ignorance, according to the viewer. And of course, according to the main female character. So there's another one. And the third one that I want to talk about as well is the community. The community has like just an extreme amount of resentment and hatred towards the mother as a parent and even years after the fact she still gets so much shit from the community so it's like even though as the viewer is clear as day and even though um, as the mother is clear as day that this is a full nature situation pretty much every other character even the psychopath himself um, suggests otherwise and so i think that that actually added to my frustration when watching the film it was hard though with franklin or john c Riley's character like i wasn't sure if he was being willfully ignorant or if um, Kevin was just so good at manipulating him because every scene you see them in together, he is the picture of a perfect son. Hey, Dad, how's it going, maybe, Dad? Maybe a little Did bit of both. Photographs today, Dad. Aw, thanks, pal. And it's just, can he see through that act? Is he just choosing to ignore it, or does he like genuinely believe that Kevin is a good son? 
seems like Franklin only comes in in certain moments, though. Um, so it seems like he's not necessarily willfully ignorant. It's just that he just doesn't see that other side. But he does ignore his wife, though. He like yeah, and like I, I was I was so fucking angry watching watching this film because like you go to bat for your wife, you gotta have the united front against your children, whether they're psychopaths or not. Not one time in this film does he ever offer her an olive branch or any sort of sympathy. He's always like, "You need to change yourself." He's a normal kid. Just like even when at this, like very early in the film, she's walking the baby around and it's crying everywhere, and he oh, picks yeah, it up yeah. and it's like so patronizing to her. It's like, no, no, you just gotta like bump it a little bit and jump it around. Like he is such (laughs) a, like not only ignorant, but like shitty, shitty husband in my opinion. Uh, Fuck you, Franklin, RIP. That scene was so um, visually striking uh, when she takes the baby carriage to the, uh, right beside the guy with the jackhammer or whatever it's called. Oh yeah, yeah. That was a welcome relief for me. As a viewer, (laughs) I was sick of that baby squalling. I'm like, yes, bring on that sweet melody of the jackhammer. And, like, no other point in the film supports the whole, like, this is embedded inside him more than that baby scene, I think, because that thing is not even old enough to really be socialized at all, and yet you still see that same sort of favoritism and um, behaviors towards both the mother and the father and that stark contrast present before the kid's even one year old. I think, like, the scene that really uh, pissed me off the most was after the little sister gets the drain fluid in one of her eyes, and right away, Franklin's like, why'd you leave it out? Oh, and, yeah. Um, no, granted, like, he has no no real indication that Kevin is showing these behaviors and that the possibility that Kevin did it is a, a viable option. Um, but the fact that he just, like, immediately put the blame on his wife and was, like, guilt-tripping her right from the start. Like, why did you fuck up? Why did you do this? Like, obviously, she's going through a tough enough time as it is, yeah. even if it was her omission, which we as the viewer, I think, are kind of led not to believe. Um, the only reason she had it was because she needed it for the hamster down the fucking garbage drain. Yeah, yeah. He was also like, he also didn't even punish Kevin for completely destroying her room. Oh, the map room. Yeah. That was just like, yeah, he's sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Was that paint? Yeah, he filled up his little squirt gun with black and red paint. It's black and white and red all over. Eva's bathroom. <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going with this, but like her room covered with red paint and then her house later on. Oh, there's so much red in the film. So much red. Like the very first time we see her, like she's soaked in the tomatoes uh, at like the whatever that is. It's that festival of tomatoes. tomatoes <laughs> But, like, she's covered in the tomatoes, and the thing that I loved about that scene, I thought it was so strikingly beautiful, was it went from, like, this, the calamity of excitement, where there was this clamor of voices and cheering, and then it smoothly transitions to these, to the clamor of fear and shock and awe, with, like, these violent screams, as if they were reacting to a murder, and it's a perfect transition where it shows... Eva's transition from her past life to the current horrors of her life while showing her soaked in red as if she was soaked in blood. I thought that was such a poignant scene. Those gym doors were red too. Because there was... Oh yeah. And to, to, to add to that, I saw this whole film as a kind of reconciliation of Eva's character trying to deal with the events of her past. Like I see so much of the flashbacks like directly her own mind kind of looking back 
Um, and that's why you have this kind of interstitial cuts between past and present. And so you have, in the present of the film, her entire house covered in red, and that's why you see scenes of her like trying to scrub it off, or like scrubbing the redness off of her porch, and trying to like, as she also recollects about this dark past. And so- Once will these spots never be clean? <laughs> She's kind of like, you know, cleaning her house, ridding her past of this symbolism, I guess. And the final scene is her walking out of the prison and out of the um, prison doors. And actually, like, you don't really see an environment or a landscape outside of the doors. Like, what you see is just pure white. And the last bit of the film is not a cut to black. It is a cut to white. In so many ways, you see her, like, reconciling her past and then walking out of this prison almost in a blank slate. Like, she has now cleaned her house. She has cleaned her mind. This is actually a question that I wanted to bring up with you guys, which is, um, do you think that Eva got the answer that she wanted at the end when she asked Kevin why he did it? The fact that he was unable to come up with an answer was the perfect answer for her because she was able to reconcile it as something that's illogical, something that is uh, without a causal effect. I think it was able to like, it was somewhat vin um, somewhat vindicating her in the fact that she could no longer put the blame on herself. It wasn't an action he took against her, at least based off the presentation of the answer. And um, I think like that might've been the perfect answer for her to hear. It was just like, this child is just, there is no rationality to it. There's no logic to it. I think so. And there's also not satisfaction, but you see him, he's now 18. He doesn't have his floppy boy band hair anymore. He's shaved and in an orange suit. So he's going to an adult facility or prison. Now he's officially an adult and out of her hands, which, you know, however uncomfortable that might be, could be a relief for her. It's also like the first time I feel like we see Kevin show any type of fear. In the yeah, yeah exactly. that's the only emotion I've seen on his face the entire film. Like you do see that little glimpse and it's refreshing. Yeah, I agree. It was like, I was going to say he looks absolutely terrifying in that last um, scene when his head is like poorly shaven and he he just looks at his mom and it's like half his face is like in shadows almost from what yeah, I remember. Yeah, she says to him like, oh, you look nervous. And he's like, do you know anything about this or like about prison that I'm going to? Well, no, Kevin, but good luck. So ultimately, I feel like Eva kind of got what she needed through that uh, through that encounter with Kevin. I think she needed to see him show fear and I think she needed to hear him say that he didn't know why he did it because that showed her that he was human first and foremost and capable of emotion and also the fact that there wasn't a logical process behind why he did what he did despite it being so calculated and premeditated. I think that if he said like it was all against you to her or if he said something along like, uh, if he provided a reasoning, it would just like raise more questions as to like, well then why does he have that motivation? For him to have no logical motivation is something that almost puts us at ease because like it means there's no perverse character within that has these ill intentions. It was just this randomness. Okay, moving on. I think that just to kind of, I remember the other point I wanted to make on um, the nurture and just to give the listeners some backstory myself sarah and i'm not sure about you oliver read an article on the atlantic about psychopathy and one of the interesting things about that article was the way in which 
even though you have this inherent psychopath that is present, that, that is like this from birth, there are some nurturer behaviors that you can take as a parent or as a psychologist or as a therapist or whatever it is to steer them away from some of these behaviors. And one of the things that was so surprising after reading the article is the way in which you do that. And that is through rewards-based behavior. And um, it is not the punishment of bad behavior that motivates psychopaths. The article literally goes out of the way, like they're in jail, they've killed people, they've been punished by their parents, their teachers, et cetera. That's not gonna work. But what does work is rewarding, actually rewarding these kids for good behaviors. And these are kids here. So talking about giving them baseball cards or like TV or internet access, et cetera. And so that was just one fascinating thing from the article. But then I thought about how you can apply that to this film and how fucking hard it would be for Ava to implement a practice like this to her child and actually reward the kid that resents her so much. Like what a true act of will she would have to undergo. It's such you know, just an interesting like bit from the article because here's the solution. When you think about how hard that would be to act out in the human context, it's like truly, truly unbelievable. And so I don't know if you guys uh, think Ava could have done anything about that. Do you think that hug at the end was kind of like a reward, a positive affirmation for Kevin, or do you think that was for her? Tough one, very tough one, because at least as I see this film, his relationship with his mom is like irreconcilable. So to reward Kevin, I would think of some sort of third party reward. Um, it would be no reward to Kevin himself to get a hug from his mom. So that's why I see it purely in a good context for the mom herself. Yeah, same with the whole her taking him out for, for dinner, the mini golf, like that was as much for her as it was for him. Not necessarily something that Kevin would feel rewarded by. What he did feel rewarded by was the archery, right? Yeah. That was like the one thing that gave him a sense of fulfillment. Or was that just his inner psychopath coming out? Ooh, that's a good question. Because that was the interesting thing about the archery was like he, he became obsessed with archery through his mother reading the stories of Robin Hood to him. So it's not like I, I don't think he was drawn to archery because of his psychopathic behaviors. I don't think there was like a murderous intent or obsession with archery itself. I think like he had like a genuine draw to the subject based off of an experience he had as a child with the fascination of a character. The fact that it became a perverse intent later on in life, I think is much more serendipitous than coming from like a strong foundation of that. But remember the scene um, where he's out in the backyard with the Robin Hood hat on and he's got the, the uh, toy and he like shoots the arrow and it hits the glass window and like the mo um, the mother's standing right behind the glass. Yeah, what an antagonistic little shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think like the point that I'm, I'm trying to make is not so much that like it didn't, it, it like it evolved into something okay, that was yeah. about killing, whereas like the basis of it was something that came from hearing the child and being subjected to it. Let's... Oh, one more thing about the the mini putt, there was um, one scene, like one part where the mom makes a comment about the fat people. And then Kevin's like, you know, you can be really harsh sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, uh, she says something along the lines of like, you too. And then he says like, oh, that's where I got it from or something like that. More evidence of him kind of like pinning some sort of responsibility into his mother as well. Another thing I found really fascinating with the movie was the fact that it was jumping around from the different uh, different points in the timeline. There was no real logical sequence to it. Like uh, it starts in the in the present and then it goes into the past and then a different element of the past. Like it really jumps all along. And what I found so effective about its narrative structure 
was the fact that you got to witness these different elements play out um, out of sequence and you're able to kind of piece it together. Like, for instance, one of the first things I noticed was like when we see Eva, Eva, when we see Eva in her current state, she's wearing this Led Zeppelin shirt. And then it cuts back to like this really fond memory of Franklin like constructing the um, like the baby bed thing. Yeah. (laughs) And he's wearing the Led Zeppelin shirt. And that's one thing that kind of like you see the sentimentality of Ava through that like uh, through that witnessing of the past. You get to see that connection in the fact that she's holding on to memories of Franklin. Uh, another one that was really well done was uh, the little sister. She has an eye patch in like the first scene that we see her, and we have no idea where it came from. The I think like the assumption of the audience is that she was born with a defect or something happened, and then you see later on in the movie that it's something that was caused by Kevin, or at least it's implied to be caused by Kevin. So the fact that it doesn't take uh, like a chronological sequence throughout the movie it makes a lot of these little clues a lot more effective and uh, it it makes them a lot more impactful to the audience. I think it gives um, a a stronger sense of sentimentality to Ava's character and it also like shields Kevin's true nature a little bit longer in the movie but then makes those elements retroactively important. So when I watched the movie, I was watching it with a basic understanding of where the narrative was going to go. And I felt like I was able to pick a few things out that were clues at the time. Whereas if I were to go in completely blind, and maybe, Yana, you can jump in on this as someone who did watch it uh, without any uh, knowledge of what the story was like. Those elements, you're completely blind to them and it becomes so much more effective when you see it a second time with that understanding. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm probably the only person who watched this film with literally no idea of what Kevin was or what his nature was like. Did you Um, think it was a science fiction film? Yeah, like literally (laughs) the extent to which I Googled on Wikipedia was I saw the um, cover art of the film and then I saw one line saying, uh, mother gives birth to something she did not expect or something like that. Sounds like so I'm thinking it's some sort of like cyborg fetus or some sort of like, you know, four-armed like fucking octopus looking creature. I don't know. I had no idea what to expect. And so the first like quarter of the film is really dedicated to me being in the complete dark. You don't actually see who or what Kevin is until a good 20, 25 minutes into the film. And all that I experienced in this beginning was Ava being like completely shunned by our community, completely set, singled out. And she truly seems like the victim. And she also seems like she has done something horrible. She has been responsible for some sort of horrible action. Turns out that that's not the case at all. And the film is just like, actually the kid is just a human being, a psychopath. So like no sci-fi twist, but it totally changed the way that I approached the beginning of this film. And what really stuck out to me was the scene of her going outside of the convenience store and just getting punched in the face by the other woman and her being okay with it and accepting it. But then once, again, as Brendan said, once you realize what happens, you see the prior events earlier in the film in a totally different light. So when you see it the first time, okay, maybe she just did something truly horrible and fucked up her community. But then once you find out what happened, like you actually just feel extremely angry at the woman herself and the community at large for paying any sort of responsibility onto her at all. So yeah, I think you make a great point, Brendan. Yeah, same with me. The first time I watched it, it was probably two years ago, and I had a general idea of where it was going. Like, I knew 
Kevin inflicted some kind of violence on his high school classmates. I didn't know the manner in which he did it, um, but the whole movie kind of set me up to believe that um, she had separated from her family as a result of this, not that they were actually dead. So that was a shock for me the first time I watched it, but on a second rewatch, I was able to pick up on so many more of those clues that you mentioned. I thought it was gonna be some kind of like social commentary on violence in America. The book was written in 2003, so like fresh off of Columbine. And it's really not a film about that at all. No, it's really not. Like so much of what I read after reading the film, like standard like news articles, New York Times, et cetera, frames it that way. But I guess, I don't know, maybe as a Canadian or as like some, like I just, I just saw it as like a true art film, not unrelated to that whole like commentary on mass violence, et cetera. Sure, it can be repurposed as that, but like, at least in my interpretation, this is not what the film is acting as. One of the things that I find kind of, kind of funny about the whole thing is how much it illuminated uh, like the absurdity of some of these hero films where like the antagonist is just like, he's the, almost like the polar opposite of the hero and their sole reason of existence is in opposition of the hero. Like I think of, I don't know if you guys saw Doctor Strange, but the opposition in Doctor Strange was like, he's the bad Doctor Strange. And like, I kind of got that feeling from this film where it was like, Ava was the good character and Kevin was like bad Ava. She, he had some of Ava's characteristics taken to an absurd extreme such that he was like this comically overdone antagonist. Um, so to kind of, to come out of that movie with that sort of uh, different perspective on the narrative structures of some of the movies and uh, books and comics and stuff that we're consuming now, I thought that was an interesting take on media in general. Um, we even see a little bit of that in a comment that Kevin makes to Ava, which I felt like was breaking the fourth wall when he's talking about movies and television and how they obsess over psychopathic characters like himself, where the quote was something along the lines of, who are all these people watching? They're watching people like me. Yeah, that was chilling as fuck. And I think that he and the film also play into that idea as well. Like you see what, uh, at least in my interpretation, was not the actual act of him murdering the people in the school, but was what was instead some sort of artful reconstruction or imagination from Ava as well. Like surely he doesn't have all of his bow stuff lined up in the middle. And then he just like romantically as the piano plays, like starts shooting arrows at people. And then you have like the round of applause around him and he takes a bow where it, that was not the actual act, right? It was just um, some sort of recreation in Ava's mind. But like that just speaks to exactly what he's saying. He is the star of his own film. And, and you know, in so many ways, like the, the movie reviews and New York Times, et cetera, like making it about the school shooter is doing the same kind of thing that he is accusing people of in the film. And yeah, I don't know, like to kill people with the bow and arrow just made it more like an art film as well. Because then you can have the whole like irony of the Robin Hood. It just makes it much more dramatic as opposed to him just walking in with a gun. Yeah. To me, like he was cartoonishly a psychopath as well. Like there was no real human element to him other than his psychopathy and his manipulation of his parents 
and how fucked up he was. Like, it was like, almost like he was in on the joke sometimes. Like when Eva was making the map room, she's like, oh, if you want, I can help you make your room look like your personality. And he deadpan says, what personality? Seems so funny to me. So you guys don't think that was like an accurate presentation of psychopaths? Well, all the psychopaths that I know. <laughs> it's actually very rare to be a psychopath like we probably don't know any i think i went down a rabbit hole once on youtube where i was watching like uh interviews with psychopaths and it's terrifying like them on camera talking yeah and so okay well that's interesting what similarities differences to kevin like are they equally as deadpan and like this dead look yeah. in their eyes and like just pure machiavellian yeah, yeah. like soulless beasts or i think so based on what i've seen it's terrifying but but maybe it had to like maybe the film had to have those like cliche psychopath traits just to be relatable to the audience maybe you know like killing mm -hmm. the animal killing the hamster i think it's like so hard for us to wrap our heads around it because we feel empathy and we have all these emotions and it's very hard to understand someone who through no fault of their own is missing that from their actual like brain wiring how ironic that us that are capable of empathy can't empathize with that <laughs> you say through no fault of their own, Sarah. Can you pin any responsibility on Kevin? Not really. Like, I don't know how much of this is true because I was Googling it. They say that sociopaths are made as psychopaths are born. And as you mentioned before, we see Kevin exhibiting those traits from birth, just the vindication towards his mother. And in that article that from The Atlantic that we were reading, it does talk about a specific area in the brain, the amygdala, that just is underdeveloped. It doesn't develop. So I can't, I don't think that you can put fault on anyone for that. I agree. Any moral responsibility? Because it basically means Kevin is no different from a uh, tsunami. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Because again, in the article, we don't have to have all this in it. But I remember how they were saying um, there are some kids who like grew up in really awful situations where they were abused and all of that stuff. And that kind of brought out the psychopathic traits. Whereas there were other children who grew up in like middle class families for all intents and purposes, like had a loving home who like strayed that way regardless. So like, I agree with you, like due to the brain state for the most part, moral responsibility is gone. Yeah, like the part that feels empathy, the part that um, fears punishment, fears being withdrawn from others is just not there. So what about a perfectly rational human being on drugs with the same sorts of impairments commits the same crime? I don't know. I think that's a lot. That's rare, I think. I don't know, though. God, I wish we had a psychologist here. There's one scene that I, I laugh or chuckled at, and it was um, when Kevin, uh, when his locks arrive at the house, he opens them up, and the dad... Walks over, he pats him on the back, and he's like, like Donald Trump, huh? <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. That quote didn't well. <laughs> How about we go around table, most disturbing scene of the film? Ooh, okay. Most disturbing scene of the film for me is the realization Eva has when she realizes that the hamster is in the drain. I'm going to say, like, the most disturbing for me as a witness to everything was when she looks at the window and she sees uh, Franklin and the daughter just, like, sitting, there, lying down on the ground with the arrows in them and the sprinklers, like, washing over them. It's like, I don't know what it was with the sprinklers. Like, the sprinkler sound effect shows up at a lot of points and times in the film. It's the opening scene. Yeah. And then um, to have that come back and see them being, like, washed of their blood and, like, I don't know. To me, that that's the scene that's going to stick with me long after watching this movie. You know what I'm really disappointed with, though? Two sex scenes. Two sex scenes with John C. <laughs> Riley, And how much of his dick do we see? 
We see no John C. Riley Dick. It was 2011. Man, Dick wasn't trending yet at that time. He gets fellatio. Kid walks in. Fellatio over. Wearing pants. Where did the pants come from? They were probably always they on. From? They were always they on. Under the covers. He pulls them Ever on. heard of a fly? That's what you do when you have children in the house. I'm sorry, Oliver. How many times have you gotten fellatio with your pants on? <laughs> you whip them off. You whip them off, no question. But what if it's like, no, Ricky, aren't they like around your ankles? Or do you take them fully off and keep your socks on? No, 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 no. You guys are psychopaths. You've never gotten fellatio before. Take it for (laughs) me. You need to be able to spread eagle if you're getting a blowjob, and you can't do that with pants on. Exactly. (laughs) This guy gets it. (laughs) It's terrible. Oh, my God. I think it needs to be like at least 120 degrees. But that's whatever, personal preference. Whatever. You should be able to take a protractor to your groin and see at least at least <laughs> a 135 degree angle there. <laughs> that's why my favorite pickup line is always, hey baby, want me to get obtuse? <laughs> you guys are sickos. I think like if I knew somebody who I was talking with movies about, and I said, like, hey, have you ever seen We Need to Talk About Kevin? And they knew nothing about it, I'd say watch it. Because the way that it plays with expectations and the way that it, uh, the way that it portrays Kevin, the fact that you're kind of like, you know there's a little twerk, but like, I, I feel like the way the movie is framed, you're almost assuming like some kind of infanticide to take place. And I like the way it played with expectations. I thought it went, like, a little bit too heavy-handed with the red. Like, there was so many red scenes and so many uh, symbols of blood. I, I thought that was a little bit weak, but The overall, tomato soup wall. Yeah. Oh, my God. The tomato <laughs> soup wall at the grocery store. The, grocery the art director had sad. way too Remember much fun. Remember when she opens her carton of broken eggs, and you're like, oh, is no. that because oh, she yeah. has a bad egg? Are all her seeds bad? Oh, no. Oh. But then Celie's fine, so. How about her eating the scrambled eggs? Picking you up yes. the cracks. Oh That's so depressing for so many reasons. But also similar how he's, when she goes to see him in prison, he picks his uh, fingernails and puts them all in a line on the table in front of him. Great cash. Also fucked up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Funny, like, there's a lot of like similarities between Ava and uh, Kevin. And I feel like Kevin is just like that gross over-exaggeration of her character as like a villain. True. Which is maybe why it hits Ava so hard as well. Maybe, yeah, maybe she's going up against like the worst characteristics within herself. Well, like that article said, some of those traits can actually be an advantage, like being cool, calm, and collected, like a high-level athlete, or having the narcissism of a politician. Like some of those traits taken individually can be beneficial to you. It's when all of them present that it becomes dangerous. True, and like she is very successful as well before yeah. before Kevin's born, right? Mm-hmm. You know the Norm Macdonald song are on Netflix, how they like sing it out every never mind. Don't keep it going. <laughs> Norm Macdonald has like this little assistant guy with him and it they do every, at the end of every episode, farewell, farewell, so long, so long, adieu, adieu. And there's the sign off. <laughs> We're done. Thank you for listening. <laughs> we will be back next week, or actually two weeks time. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Um, we would love for you to uh, send us an email at jackswaycollective at gmail.com. We are looking for our first piece of digital fan mail. Please send it. We will read live on the air if you send us something, 100%. Hi, Mom. Moms are 100% allowed. We will read Brendan's mom's fan mail. Also, rate us on iTunes, Spotify, 
Stitcher, TuneIn, etc. Just so you guys know, I'm not short my mom this episode because that's how I'm going to get put into therapy. This one was truly grotesque.